Good morning, everyone. I hope it's been a good term and started off well for you. Often it's the, uh, the little details that make things come alive, isn't it? If you've ever had the opportunity to see the Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, you might wonder what all the fuss was about at first. A small little canvas, a woman of no particular prominence, not someone of international notoriety or anything like that. But look close and see what the author has, what the, what the artist has done. Uh, the little flick at the end of her smile, the way the eyes confront you and the picture comes alive. Or consider an exquisite piece of jewellery. If you're like me, if you've seen one antique brooch or pendant, you've seen them all. But uh, if you look at it with the help of someone who can point out the detail of the engraving, the way the jewel has been set, the marks of past ownership that are almost unnoticeable to the naked eye, and the object in its history comes alive. Or go into a well-furnished room. Like other rooms, it's likely to have walls, a floor, a ceiling and windows. But take a careful look at the photographs on the corner table and the way they are arranged. The choice of furnishings, the lighting, the rug and cushions, the things that make this room different from every other room you've been in and it starts to come alive. Now, I find it's often like that when I study the Bible. Often, as a friend of mine says, it's the detail where all the fun is. It's the detail where the hidden treasure can be found, especially when it's a familiar piece, like the passage we come to this morning in Matthew's Gospel. The account of the transfiguration of Jesus is well known. It's a children's Bible special. It's often depicted in religious art, and indeed, the great Raradros at the front of St Andrew's Cathedral in Sydney has a version of it in its central panel. There was actually a raging controversy uh, which saw that panel inserted in the place of one depicting the crucifixion in 1887. You can get Colin Bale to tell you all about that and where the original panel can be found today if you have the scuba gear. Many of us think we know the story of the Transfiguration well and we quickly identify its main point as a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And of course that's true. But there's more to be seen here. The details really are exciting and they give us a clear view of why this record of this event is given to us. God's word is addressed to us here in this room this morning and there's something that we need to hear. So let's pray that God will enable us to look carefully at this very familiar event and the way it's recorded for us and hear the word addressed to us this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that not a word of it is wasted, but that the word which you caused to be written for us is that we might grow in faith, trusting the Lord Jesus, following him as his disciples, honouring you and serving each other. Would you please open our eyes to see what your word has to say to us this morning, for we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. So will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 17? And uh, I'll read from the very first verse. 
And after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And then they saw Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter responded by saying to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I'll build three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a cloud surrounded them and a voice spoke from the cloud, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Rise, don't be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. When they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered, Elijah indeed comes first and he will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came and they did not recognise him, but they did what they wanted with him. So too the Son of Man is about to suffer by them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, let's look at this section this morning under three headings, the vision, the voice and the variation. The vision of the glorious Son of God, the voice from heaven with its gentle rebuke, and the variation from the expectation of the scribes and the disciples. Start with the vision. You'll be aware, no doubt, that Matthew, of all the Gospels, is concerned to draw lines between the life and ministry of Jesus and the Old Testament. Uh, Sometimes he does that explicitly by quoting Old Testament texts that Jesus fulfills. Sometimes he does it with allusions and pointing out the details that remind anyone familiar with the Old Testament of the events which provide the background to what's happening in Jesus' ministry at that moment. Here in Matthew 17, various Old Testament threads converge. That's obvious in the appearance of of, uh, Moses and Elijah, the great prophetic giver of the law and the great prophetic defender of the covenant, the law and the prophets, summing up, in a sense, the witness of the whole Old Testament. Here is a visual confirmation that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. Yet this is obvious at other points as well. Matthew is extraordinarily precise in mentioning this happened after six days. Six days after Jesus told them about his coming suffering and death and resurrection, after he told them about the cost of discipleship and that some standing there would not taste death until they'd seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, six days after that, Jesus took these three disciples on a mountain hike. Now, that could be just how long it took to get from Caesarea Philippi to the mountain. But given Matthew's habit of alluding to key Old Testament backgrounds, perhaps we should just scratch our heads and ask, is there anything special that happened over six days or after six days in the Old Testament that might be the background Matthew has in mind? And Matthew stresses that this was a mountain, indeed a high mountain, that they would climb. 
Now, not too many of the mountains around Caesarea Philippi would be regarded as all that high. Uh, so why would Matthew want to stress the mountain? Again, perhaps that's just where it happened. But maybe there's something more. And Matthew names the three disciples Jesus took with him. Uh, not too surprising, perhaps. There are plenty of other occasions in the Gospels where these three were mentioned as close companions of Jesus. But here they are again. These three and Jesus going up the mountain after six days. There is a moment in the unfolding story of the Old Testament where a mountain hike, three named companions, six days, and a vision of the glory of God come together. In Exodus 24, Moses was commanded to take Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 unnamed uh, elders of Israel, up the mountain, and we're told they saw the God of Israel. And then Moses was told to go up on his own. And the glory of the Lord was present there in a cloud for six days. And then the Lord called Moses out, called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Just a little too many parallels for it to be ignored, aren't there? Perhaps we're supposed to see that what was about to happen with Jesus and his disciples was every bit as significant as Moses' glimpse of God's glory on the mountain. The glory of God was seen in the Old Testament directly and up close by Moses, but indirectly and from a distance by the people of Israel. Moses spoke with God face to face as one does with a friend, but they heard from God through his testimony. As the rest of the story of the, of the wanderings in the wilderness unfolded with all its ups and downs, Moses knew who Israel was dealing with. He saw the terrifying danger of their idolatry, their grumbling and their disobedience because he had seen the glory of God. They were trifling with something, with someone beyond their comprehension. So look at what happens here in Matthew 17 against that background. Jesus took Peter, James and John up the mountain and there they became as Peter would say later, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Six days earlier, they'd been told that Jesus must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And now they get a glimpse, a unique glimpse, of who it is who must go that way. The one whose face shone like the sun whose clothes became like white light. As one writer put it, what they experienced on that mountain was a temporary uncovering, uncovering of the Son of God's intrinsic glory. It's the great reveal, pushing back the curtain for just a moment so they could see just who it is they and the elders, chief priests and scribes were dealing with. I don't think we spend uh, anywhere near as much time as previous generations did on thinking about the glory of Christ. For a hundred different reasons, most of them good, we prefer, I think, to contemplate the nearness of Jesus, his gentleness and compassion, 
his gathering of lost sheep and his guarding and keeping them till the end. He took the form of a servant and was obedient even to death on a cross. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. But he was still equal in glory and majesty with God. He still has all power and authority. He is still the eternal son of the eternal father. And when the curtain is pulled back for just a moment, it's dazzling. This is who Jesus really is. Whatever he has said will happen, whatever is about to happen, will happen to him. Now, it was important for Peter and James and John to know that. Because this moment will cast all those moments in an entirely different light. And it's important for us to know that too. It casts what's happening all around us in an entirely different light too, doesn't it? Those who rail against all talk of God in the public square who insist that they have a right to determine how they should live and who they should be, who decry the imaginary sky fairy, as they derisively call him, they have no idea who they're dealing with, do they? The transfiguration gives us, as well as Peter, James and John, a glimpse of the glory of the one who came and gave himself in such an extraordinary way to save us. When they reviled him, this is the one they were reviling. When they abused and tortured him, this is the one they were abusing and torturing. When they nailed him to a cross, this is the one they nailed to the cross. And he endured it all for you. And for me. That's the vision. That's what they saw, the glorious Son of God. Worth pausing for a moment and contemplating that, isn't it? Well, secondly, the voice. The transfiguration provoked an immediate response from Peter. In another gospel, we're told he said what he said because he didn't know what to say and was terrified. And that fits, I think, with what we've come to expect from Peter. Speak first and think later. Peter's proposal is that they commemorate the event by building three tabernacles or tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What he hasn't quite grasped is that Moses and Elijah were there to talk with Jesus. Peter's proposal is to honour all three, Jesus, Moses and Elijah alongside each other. But that calls into question the uniqueness of Jesus and the focus of this entire incident on him. Peter's got it all wrong again. He's concentrating on the moment, not the person. I like the fact that the polite old British professor F.F. F. Bruce once wrote, the whole scheme is a stupidity, which for him would have been very strong language. No wonder that before he's even finished speaking, Peter is corrected. The voice from the cloud repeats the words heard years before when Jesus was baptised. This is, or you are, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
They are, of course, echoes of the words of David in Psalm 2, where David, the great messianic figure of the Old Testament, speaks of his own special relationship with God, but even more accurately of the relationship of the greater king to come. And they echo the words of Isaiah 40, where the chosen servant of God, one, it soon becomes clear, who will suffer for those he came to deliver, is the object of God's favour. These words from the cloud identify Jesus even more clearly than the dazzling appearance of the glorious sun in conversation with Moses and Elijah. What's more, they distinguish him from those two giants of the Old Testament. There was no prophet greater than Moses in the Old Testament. He is the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt and he's the one through whom the law was given. And Elijah was the great prophet who stood for God when all Israel seemed to have gone after Baal. In the great showdown on Mount Carmel, he put everything on the line out of his loyalty to the living God. And he did not die, but was carried off to heaven. Two enormously significant figures. But Jesus is the son the ruler who exercises authority over all the nations and fulfills the purpose of God. He's also the servant, the spirit-empowered chosen one who will have compassion on the vulnerable yet rule with justice, who will suffer but will in the end triumph. When the vision and the voice are finished, this point will be made again in an unmistakable way. Having fallen on their face in fear and a recognition that they were in the presence of God, the disciples feel the touch of Jesus' hand on their shoulder. They look up and they see only him. No more Moses. No more Elijah. Only him. It all resolves in him. But you might have noticed that there were three more words added which were not sounded out at the baptism. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Yes, it is a gentle rebuke. Stop talking, Peter. Listen to him. You don't set the agenda, he does. But it's a little more general than that too. It sets out what is the appropriate response to the recognition that Jesus is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to listen to him. And we need to hear that, you and I, because we're much more like Peter than we realise. We can rush ahead with our own plans and our own agendas. Haven't you got it all sorted out already? And we too need to learn the first and most important thing to do is to listen to him. Listen to what Jesus said his Messiahship would be like. He will suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and only then, on the third day, he will be raised. The gospel, the real gospel, reflects his agenda rather than our own. But listen too to what Jesus said about discipleship. In the wake of this kind of Messiahship, it won't be all victory and adulation. The gospel on your lips will meet resistance and opposition as it did on his.
So the question at this point is really a very simple one, isn't it? Are you listening? Are you listening? Who is setting the agenda for you and your ministry this week, this month, this year, well into the future? And who is setting the agenda for your discipleship today, this week, this month, this year, well into the future? Are you listening to him? So firstly, the vision of the glorious Son of God, and secondly, the voice with its gentle rebuke and reminder to listen to him, and thirdly, much more briefly, the variation from the expectation of the scribes and the disciples. I was pushing it to get another V, but there we go. As they came down the mountain, Jesus once more, but for the last time in this gospel, told them not to say anything until after the resurrection. Before then, what they'd seen and heard might be misunderstood, you see. It might be seen as a claim for power in the way the world thinks about power. The spectacular nature of the event might draw people in in a search for more spectacular events. He might be misunderstood as a political messiah. The deliverance he came to bring might be misunderstood as the liberation of Israel from foreign rule. Only after the crucifixion and the resurrection will it be obvious that neither of those things are true. His kingdom is of a different order altogether. His rule goes beyond anything anyone had ever seen. It's intriguing, isn't it, that the disciples don't ask him about why they should be silent? They don't even ask him about the transfiguration itself and what it means. Something else is troubling them. You see, they were beginning to realise, they haven't got it all yet by any means, but they're beginning to realise that Jesus was speaking in categories the Old Testament used of the end and the culmination of God's purposes. And yet Jesus was also turning those categories upside down. God's purposes would be fulfilled by his suffering. He will be raised, but only after he's been shamefully treated and killed. How were they to make sense of all of that? The Old Testament, in places like Malachi 4, spoke of Elijah coming before the end. The mighty prophet who withstood the combined power and influence of all the prophets of Baal and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord came upon them. So where was Elijah? Where was the great confrontation part two? The return of the prophet with everything that stood against the Lord and his people lying shattered on the ground in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Where was that? And Jesus responds, yes, Elijah indeed comes and he will restore all things, but not in the way you think. For you see, Elijah already came. And the very people who speak about him with such authority did not recognise him when he came. And they did to him whatever they wanted. He suffered just as I am about to suffer. And finally, the coin drops. It's John the Baptist. That is, after all, what he said back in chapter 11. If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. 
See, the end has begun and the promises are being fulfilled, but it's going to look very different to the way you've been taught. In the first instance, not glory and power and the defeat of all who stand against us, but suffering and mistreatment and death. But that will not be the end. There will be a resurrection. Which is why understanding the vision and listening to the voice are all the more important. Because Jesus is so much more glorious than we could ever imagine. The sun can't match him for brightness, nor the whitest of white light. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's who they are going to do all this to in just a little while. But we need to listen to him and hear that his suffering and this opposition is not the end, but a means to the end. He was raised. The glory those three disciples gained just a glimpse of that day is all there is now. And the day is fast approaching when the mouths of all those who speak against him now will be silent, but wide open in shock and disbelief. It all converges on Jesus. It all resolves in him. Moses, David, Elijah, the chosen suffering servant figure of Isaiah, it all adds the rich detail that makes this story so fascinating and so powerful and so incredibly relevant for you and for me. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, the voice from the cloud said. Listen to him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your son. Father, we have the testimony of Peter and James and John of the glory they saw for just a moment on that day. And we look forward to that day when, with all the glory of the kingdom, Jesus returns to take us home. Will you please, in the meantime, enable us to listen to him, to measure our lives, our message, and our future by him. And this we ask in Jesus' name.